Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee, um, doing my best to have thoughts and use words. <laughs> um, joined by Richard Cohen. Oh, hi, everybody. He's Zen like a mofo, his t shirt says. Mine just says Ball State. It's very boring. Oh. Um, and Liz Nolasco. Yeah. I'm you wearing know. flowers if anyone cares. She's flowery. <laughs> <Lovely>. <laughs> So um, we're going to. She recently gave birth to a human being. So I feel like that's more important than any shirt. (laughs) How long do I get that badge? Because he's almost one now. (laughs) Okay. Yep. You just get to use it as long as you want. That's right. Um, Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit more about holidays. We did a straight to video (laughs) episode (laughs) about Halloween. Halloween time and knew yeah. as we recorded that that we needed to talk about holidays again. We we all sort of agreed that there was more to say. Um and uh and it's holiday time for a lot of people. So we thought this is a good time to do that. Um so I'm gonna start with a quote from um Julie uh Bisson's book. I think that's how you say her name, B-I-S-S-O-N. Yep. And it's called Celebrate an anti-bias guide to enjoying holidays in early childhood programs. And this book's been around for a while, but she just recently uh, published a new edition, like within the last couple of years. So, um, so I was working through the new edition and it, I think, I think there are significant differences in her, her positions and recommendations between the two, if anyone's curious about that. Oh, I Uh, I am. I'd like to hear from you. What's, what's evolved. Um, well, uh, yeah, I said I would have to I would have to prepare specifically for that conversation oh. um, more than I've prepared for today. But we can do that. I love to do that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, but our quote, our quote is, but using holidays to anchor learning about other cultures runs the risk of trivializing a cultural group by implying that the most important thing about it is a holiday. Promoting misinformation about a cultural group by disconnecting the meaning of the holiday from the context of daily life, and promoting views of quote unquote, exotic people who don't do daily life activities, but rather sing and dance and eat special foods. Such approaches overemphasize the difference between people rather than demonstrating the ways in which we are both similar to and different from each other. Um, I feel like there's a lot of directions that could go, but I want to just ask if you, either of you have a, like an immediate response to it before we get further. Well, you won't be surprised to know I do. Yeah. Um, Liz probably does. I just always beat her to the punch. But, I know Liz uh, does because when I sent her this yeah. quote, she said, Ooh, with an exclamation point. So. Oh, you want to start Liz? Go for it. 
if, if you've got an immediate form thought, go, go right ahead. I'm still forming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just going to say, it's not really, yeah, I just wanted to point something out in the passage that, uh, what's her name just read. Um, that would be Heather. Yes. The yeah. nerd. Yeah. Um, uh, it's in the first three words, I think. Um, other cultures. Mm -hmm. So it's not about how to teach about all cultures or how to teach about our culture. Mm -hmm. This quote is specifically about how do you address cultures other than the one that's most prevalent where you are, mm -hmm. right? So one of the biggest challenges to me around um, the topic of holidays, well, no, actually of any anti-bias work um, in our field is... Um, it's a different set of strategies when you are in a heterogeneous or diverse classroom community mm -hmm. than if you are in a homogeneous classroom community where everybody is of the same culture or looks the same, whatever that might be. It's a different set of strategies. You know, if we, if we believe that children benefit most from concrete learning of things that are familiar and meaningful to them, it's a whole different conundrum when people who are different than us are abstract because they don't, they're not concrete and meaningful in our little universe. So to me, that's, I don't know the, uh, I'm not saying the answer to it. I'm just saying, I, I just, for me, wanted to clarify that that seems to be the context of this particular yeah. Okay. But I think that's, um, it, you know, she starts by saying, but using holidays too. And I think that's what sort of started my thinking here, because right. that's right. what we do so often in childcare programs and, uh, you know, whatever the early, early learning setting is, um, right. we, we, we sort of set our whole year's themes around holidays and use them yeah. um, for our own um, I'll, I'll say agenda, but I wish I had something more nuanced. Um, yeah. We and, don't need and, to talk about Mexican culture until Cinco de Mayo. Right. And we think that we're including, but really we're othering. Right. Exactly. Um, the, these other, other groups, you know, anyone who right. isn't like me right. must be exotic and, um, we'll look for two or three times a year that we can talk about how they are. Right. Um, fancy. So now that we've defined the problem, Liz is going to tell us the the solution. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's my turn now. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, no. I mean, I guess the thing that I really am stuck on is learning about other cultures because I have very varied thoughts and questions and no good answers here. <laughs> because I think you know we live in a diverse society in a very broad technical sense and early learning programs are the most segregated settings for children. It's early learning programs in church. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the idea of learning about a group when no one from that group is present feels like almost impossible to do well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are so many ways to teach that there are so many different people in the world and around us and in our cities, even that we just don't necessarily see every day because of the circles we run in. Um, but I think that's where this more embedded anti-bias approach is necessary rather than focusing, like you said, on the holidays or even on, 
you know, even if we're able to deconstruct and do it well, um, you know, bring in people who actually celebrate the holidays, but we're still stuck in that this is what these people do. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much more value in bringing in images of people and actual people of other cultures. You know, one of the big things um, that I've tried to do is when we have guest experts come in for different projects that the kids are doing is try to bring in people from different groups. The children are not necessarily seeing who are experts in a particular topic. Mm-hmm. They see these people as competent and capable and intelligent and, you know, equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I about that. Oh. No, go ahead. Heather. I just, I think about that all the time. I mean, that's one of my big hangups about holidays and that's why I kind of had moved to just not doing any holidays in classrooms where I was working. Um, is, is the idea that I, I'm sort of stuck between two ideas. One is that, and I think this, I think Louise, Louise Derman Sparks in her anti-bias book talked about the hopefulness of anti-bias work and um, sort of the optimism that we, that we bring to it um, or that it brings to, to our, uh, to our work. Um, and, and I do think that we have a tremendous opportunity to, to maybe raise a generation of kids who um, just think, you know, Hanukkah, for example, because Hanukkah is starting today as we're recording. I think it's starting today. Is that right? I think it was last night. Last night. But okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we have an opportunity to, to raise a generation who don't, who don't see that as a, a, a strange, different thing. Um, because just because most of us celebrate Christmas or whatever the holiday might be. Um, but then also this idea that I don't want it to be just a tourist kind of approach. Um, or, uh, I, you know, I want to make sure that what I, what I'm presenting or offering is authentic and not exotic images of people being different than I am. Uh, and, and it's a hard balance for me to find. And then I get tied up when I like Liz, you're talking about bringing in experts. And then I think, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to ask, you know, some marginalized group to do all the work for me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was not clear enough. Experts yeah. in different subjects. So not like, right. you know, bringing in a family who's an expert on Diwali because they celebrate Diwali, but bringing in like a parent who, you know, works in the theater because. It oh, sure. Out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm glad you clarified, but I, you know, I have that thought too, because I, when I think about wanting to make it as authentic as possible, then I need to learn from somebody or somewhere. So anyway, that's just my very long way of saying, I, d- I haven't figured holidays quite out myself. I know what I'm not comfortable with. I know what I hope and wish, but, um, but the implementation is difficult for me. I know that my experience as a child is often the only Jewish kid was taking on the role of teacher anytime someone knew a holiday was coming up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was great because I was super shy and loved getting called on and asked yeah. to talk in front of the class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll jump in. Please. Um, uh, yeah. Building on what you both said, um, y- you know, where my mind went to. I mean, yeah, sorry, I don't want to steamroll over Liz. I-, I really want to acknowledge I was also the only Jewish kid. And there's a lot of people, or there may be a lot of people listening to this podcast that were the only fill in the blank in their classroom community. And so we, you know, you have my empathy and we can, many people can relate to that feeling of being 
in a spotlight or tokenized rather than sort of being normalized and feeling like you're just another part of this fabric of this community, but you're, you're set aside. Um, so, oh gosh, my mind goes to so many places. So uh, um, when we talk about behavioral guidance, for example, um, um, and we try to explain to people why to stop timeouts. And we say, well, you know, a timeout is just a behavior that's reacting to the child's behavior and you're not getting to what's below the surface, right? Um, oh my goodness, I had an amazing analogy and it's just left my brain. Mm, um, keep talking, it'll come back. Oh, up. right, okay, thank you, Heather. <laughs> um, you're such a good facilitator. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I know you don't I mean it, but it thank again. you. I'm so not used to thanking you for things that I, I know, just totally I know. my brain out. I know, um, thousands of listeners oh, just I got it, it I got it. So what we, what we tell them, what we talk about is how to look at what the developmental need is underneath that behavior, right? And that if you address that, the behavior might extinguish or might go away or, or evolve into something healthier. So oftentimes in early childhood, what's underneath that is a desire for power, it, uh, uh, you know, throwing a block or whatever the behavior is that's undesired, right? And so what I try to tell people is, you know, we're wired to react to the throwing of the block. But if it's about power, then you have to think about all the other minutes during the day and the week that aren't about throwing the block when you can give that child opportunities to experience power. And then, then that moment won't be as likely to occur because you've been attending to it throughout the rest of your time together, right? So I say all that to say that when we think about anti-bias work and, and holidays, we think about, um, we mentioned earlier that we bring holiday, we use holidays because it seems to be an entree to talking about people who are different from us. Um, but then it ends up and it tokenizes that person or those people and they're not seen as a fully fleshed human being like we are. And so to me, the key is all the rest of those moments when you're not in your holiday. Um, so when I heard Liz talking about um, bringing in an outside expert, unlike Heather, I understood her point. <laughs> and um, I got that she didn't want an expert on Hanukkah to come in and teach Hanukkah. Um, so, so when I talk to, with teachers about taking children out into the world, you know, don't just think of it as a field trip. Um, that should be something you're doing all the time, especially if you're in a homogeneous environment. Any chance you can get to take the children to someplace else um, is vitally important. But what's most important about that is the mindset of we're going there to build relationships. So we're going to the taqueria because we want to see how tacos are made. But we're also, because my big goal as an early childhood professional is community building, I'm not just meeting my community building goals within the four walls of my classroom. I'm bringing everyone else into our community. So when we meet the people that run the taqueria, we're getting to know them. We know their names. We're saying, do you want to come and read a story? Do you want to come back to our classroom? Um, the kids love you and we want to keep that love going. So then when you get to that 
Cinco de Mayo Day, and we talk about who celebrates. Oh, well, our friends, you know, uh, Rosa and her husband, uh, remember them, we love them. They celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Maybe we should see if um, they want to um, come share something about. It. Well, first of all, I've already established with the children and the family community that everyone can bring in anything that's meaningful to them from their lives, whether mm -hmm. it's a holiday or a hobby or whatever. So that context and that precedent's already there. So now I'm just bringing Rosa and her family and I'm giving them the exact same invitation. The children have, I've, I've explicitly worked for them for the children to make connections with people that resonate for them. And so that when those moments are needed, um, they feel they're not just a picture in a book of someone celebrating Cinco de Mayo. They're someone that they already know and feel emotionally connected to mm -hmm. who's telling them about their experience. And then to me, it becomes more meaningful and more concrete. In other words, developmentally appropriate. And I, I think one of the things that may for some people present a barrier to that kind of community building approach is um, regulations and accreditation and quality rating systems that have some sort of multicultural, they'll usually call it, requirement. And it's easier to demonstrate that we've met that requirement if we can give them a, um, a Hanukkah lesson plan or... Um, right. Uh, show them the posters on our walls and the dramatic, you know, food in the dramatic play area. And, but Plastic which is tacos. fine. It's fine, but we should have that all the time. Like you're saying, Richard, not just bring that food to the dramatic play area for the week that we're learning about that kind of otherness. Yeah. And I would also just add in that my approach that I just recommended is not, will not work in this, this time of COVID. Oh, sure. We're, we're not going out into the community right now. So my suggestion <laughs> one that's a bit pie in the sky right now mm -hmm. so we got to come up with other ideas yeah i think what's so important about what you were saying richard is bringing i mean going into the community and inviting them back in building i mean there are so many ways to build community relationships right but bringing people in on equal footing to you i think is just so hugely important than these are the people who cook the delicious food we enjoy, you know, and there is so right. much love and care in cooking, even when it is on a large scale like that. But I, I just want to kind of highlight that as, you know, bringing them back into the classroom as full people is, is just huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess, thank you, Liz. And I guess I would just add to that, or I would just continue to frame what I was saying earlier based on what you just said, which is um, I'm not bringing Rosa to my classroom because she's brown because she's mexican or because she made tacos for us i'm bringing everybody back to my classroom because that's my community because my goal is to help children understand the broader community that we're in part of that is building the classroom community and part of that is understanding our neighborhood and people who live in neighborhoods that we have to get into cars or mm -hmm. on a bus to go see and then i'm not asking them to come in um, you know, like Liz talked about the, the theater person earlier. I'm, I'm not saying to them, hey, we want you to come in and teach us about theater. I'm saying, hey, you're part of our community now. You're in our hearts. So come share with us something that's meaningful to you. And the person from the theater is going to share needlepoint. Like, that's fine, <laughs> you know? 
And if that's what I'm doing all the time, then the people that are different from us um, aren't, they don't feel singled out. The children don't feel they're being singled out because of the fill in the blank thing that makes them different. It's just everybody are people. Everybody is passionate about something and cares about something. And um, everyone is welcome to share that with us. So um, I'm just going back through and thinking what, what people might be wondering ab yeah. about all the things that we've been talking about. Um, and Richard, you've given some, some pretty clear examples, but I wonder if we could talk about ways to move away from plotting out your whole year around holidays. I mean, we've, we've talked, we did a whole pajama party episode about theme planning and why, why we should move away from that. But, but planning your year specifically around which holidays is, is so ingrained. Um, it's, it's what we all came up doing. Most of us, I've definitely done it. And um, as I learned more, I, I moved in different directions according to what I was learning. Um, I almost think that the oh, you froze, Heather. You're back. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Liz. The um, you know, we all know the stage. You know, Lillian Katz, the stages of teacher development, right? And there are all these different phases, and I do feel like there is some. Maybe it's not universal, but I feel like everybody I know who moved from holidays to not holidays did have that period like Heather was talking about where it's just, oh, so we're not going to touch this. And usually as time went on that graduated to, okay, well, if a kid brings it up and brings it in, we can do this. But, you know, I think there's just so much personal and professional development that goes into it that is probably semi-predictably sequenced just based on the information that we all have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I do think that the first step is just letting it go, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I wish I could bring some more proof of that, but I think part of it is just like, what are the kids doing? What are the kids interested in? What, in what do they want to know? Yeah. Why are you writing lesson plans for six months from now? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Lisa's <laughs> three questions. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And who is it for? Um, can be really helpful when we're thinking about whether we should include um, you know, some kind of holiday celebration in what we're doing with, with the children. Liz, I really appreciate you um, reminding us of Lillian Katz's, uh, of putting this conversation uh, in the context of those stages. Um, <clears throat> um, because yeah, I totally see that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you framed it that way. Um, because, you know, even you, even I heard you say, well, sorry, let me back up. We were all enculturated into a society that uh, where we're all sort of trained to think in all or nothing ways, black and white, all or mm -hmm. nothing ways, right, wrong. And we're not really trained in terms of the, most of us, in terms of the critical thinking that allows us to see the shades of gray in between black and white, right? So so even Liz just said, we, we go from doing all the holidays to doing none of them. Mm -hmm. And then you explained that. And in the context of the stages of professional development, that makes sense that I would go from, you know, survival to um, a place where the pendulum swings all the other way as I'm experimenting and learning how to improve my skills to doing none of the holidays and just focusing on what's meaningful to the kids. 
Then the next stage I would think though, is where's the middle ground, right? I mean, what my experience of this field for so long is that it's as it relates to holidays and right, I mentioned this in that video cast is all or nothing. We either do all the holidays on the calendar or we do none of them. Mm -hmm. And I think the goal is to find some kind of middle ground uh, and your rudder is always our Lisa's questions and um, what's meaningful to these children today. Mm -hmm. um, and you're looking for opportunities to talk about diversity, whether that's holidays or otherwise, but you're starting, you're always looking through the lens of what's meaningful to these little human beings today. Mm -hmm. And when you find it and it relates to holidays, you, you, you embrace it. And when you don't, you keep going. Yeah. And so much of what I have done in the past or what I've seen done with um, children during holiday weeks or theme, you know, holiday themes reverts to ways of uh, quote unquote teaching children that we know are not in line with how children really learn. So much of it is um, coloring in shapes that are relevant to the holiday or um, sitting and listening about the holiday. Um, and, and doesn't really fit, you know, the active learners that we know children are when right. they're at the ages that we're working with them. Um, so I, this is happening again, Richard, when you said I froze up a minute ago, I don't think I really did. I was just out of words <laughs> and I was just kind of spacing off. Um, the video will tell the tale. Um, but well, I, I'll, go ahead. I just think that, that we just, um, we, we sort of lose what we know is good practice or developmentally appropriate. Um, and maybe with the good intention of creating this appreciation for a, a diverse world. Um, but, but if we're not presenting that kind of information in a way that children can actively interact with it and process it, um, then we're still not teaching them about a diverse world. We're just right. going through the motions uh, and I wonder uh, for how ourselves. Much of it, oh, sorry. So, sorry, Heather, was there more? I didn't want to. Oh, no, I'm done. I'm frozen. <laughs> um, I, I wonder how much of this too is performative. How much yeah. are we doing this for the parents to say, look, parents, we're raising your white children to be appreciative of a diverse planet. You know, yeah. uh -huh. um, how much of it is, you know, like, like you were saying, of course, comes from the children, right? And how much of it is what we think we're supposed to be doing um, and how we can make a non-holiday driven curriculum meaningful to the adults or in these children's lives who can then build on it at home or at least understand where we're coming from when mm -hmm. we say, oh, you know, we love this. Yes, please, you know, celebrate with us. And we're happy to follow along with what is what your family is doing and also, you know, I'm not going to be introducing Kwanzaa to my class. <laughs> <laughs> right. So to me, I, I just heard great things in what you both, what each of you just said. Um, uh, goodness. Um, that word performative is um, a really powerful word that's really popular, I think, with um, uh, Liz's generation and younger, um, I think, because I didn't hear it until recent recent years in yeah. my life, but um, that could just mean that I'm old, but um, you could know, my way around, I don't, this is just me. I, I you know, I, in case you didn't notice, I am a white male. 
And so I, I came into, I was born into this body that's just got all sorts of privileges and assumptions about my power. And so, you know, I'm just always, I'm just, I'm just me. And I have been as a teacher since I was young, I've never been performative because um, I don't, I, cause I'm a white male. I get everything I need. I don't have to perform for anybody. That's the mindset. I think that I don't think I have, but anyway, it's just part of what informs me. But um, so if I um, am proactive with the parents and I explain to them right out of the gate, here's what your time with me is going to look like and why, then I don't have to perform about anything because I've told them exactly what's coming and why nothing's performance. Everything is for this reason. Right. But um, going back to Heather, what you said, uh, one of the things that I come back to is, of course, the topic we often come back to on these podcasts, which is what is the foundational purpose of early childhood education? And we often agree that it's relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when you were speaking earlier, I heard you use some language that um, that really uh, uh, frames, uh, invites the thinking of, of of, of the mindset that we don't think is the most healthiest, which is I am a teacher. Yeah. So when you used phrases like presenting information um, and earlier we talked to, you said, Heather, the way you said it earlier in this conversation, which I thought was really a key word, when you teach about a subject. So I would just throw out there, and I know this isn't specific to holidays, but just to throw out a provocative idea for you two to respond to, teaching about anything is not developmentally appropriate practice in the first five years. Mm-hmm. Boom. Now, what do you think about that? I'm going to argue, but first I want to make a correction. Something I said earlier, and then I want to okay. call you old. So, <laughs> and actually, okay, no, this, this all kind of relates. So okay. teaching about anything is not developmentally appropriate. Say it's your turn. Uh, <laughs> I said earlier, the thing I want to clarify is I'm not bringing Kwanzaa into my classroom because I'm not qualified to present about Kwanzaa, to tell anyone about Kwanzaa too observe right. Kwanzaa. So I just want to be super, super mm-hmm. clear. There's nothing wrong with celebrating Kwanzaa. Right. I am not the person to bring it into that. That's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just want to make that super, super explicit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard, you were talking about not being performative in your classroom. And I think that's because you've been in ECE for a very long time. I think that someone who has the competence and classroom confidence is able to articulate what their principles are and how they are presenting them and converse with families um i know well, i was putting out there that i was doing that even when i was a very young new teacher and that that was in part due to my white male privilege i, I could see some of some aspect of that right having the confidence that comes from being kind of default and right um so that I, yep. that does make sense um but i don't think there's anything wrong with explicit teaching in the early years when it's something the child is seeking to learn. I yes. think there are many ways to explicitly teach a receptive learner um, that are completely appropriate. <laughs> but when it's, yeah, when it's I, child I initiated and it's not yes. me imparting to a whole group, I, I, I yeah, I definitely agree. Right. With that. When the child wants to learn it, then it's meaningful. And we know neurologically, it's going to have a greater impact on their, their, their neural connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you're hundred percent right, Liz. We need to be following their leads. Um, but that's different than saying, 
this week is tea week, so we're doing turkeys. And mm -hmm. I'm going to teach you about the life cycle of a turkey, which so many of our lovely colleagues think that that's, or, or they're told by their boss, is what their job is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I think, too, though, within the context of relationship, just like you were talking about earlier with people bringing in, from people from the community bringing in things that they enjoy and are passionate about, I think there's plenty of room to introduce children to things that we're interested in and enjoy and offer them the if. If again, if they pick it up and run with it, right? To teach them, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. But to but, me, and to me, in the same way that you said, you you kind of go with holidays from teaching all the holidays to none. I feel like part of that professional development uh, evolution is um, you go from teaching topics to maybe experimenting with teaching nothing and just letting children play. And then what I'm hearing you talk about, Liz, is kind of like the next step in your in your progress to a place where you can get your mind around a, a middle, you know, a gray area in a middle place. And I think even in those moments when and, and whether it's holiday or not, when you see a child has an interest and so you want to help them learn about it, um, there still has to be an element that fits with how we know children learn about things. And that's by moving and by being actively engaged and using all of their senses. So even if um, uh, you brought something in Liz, that was a passion of yours and you just sat down and started sort of interacting with it. When a child express, expressed interest, you're not going to say, wait, let's do a whole theme. And here are the uh, the coloring sheets we'll use and here are the crafts we'll do and um, that kind of thing. Here's the books. Some, you know, it's going to be something else. It's gonna, still going to be you with just that child who has expressed the interest and maybe that draws other children in, but it's not going to be something where we sit down with our whole group and do a big circle time about whatever, um, uh, whatever that might be. Uh -huh. um, which, you know, lots of places try with one and two-year-olds um, right. as, as young as. So some five-year-olds might be um, more able to participate in a setting like that. That doesn't mean that that's the way they're learning. I, I know you know that, Liz. I just was, I'm not teaching you anything. <laughs> I'm just sort of thinking what well, a, could have a if, yeah, if, if there's a listener who said, oh yeah, Liz said we can still explicitly teach. Right. So I'm going to yeah. keep doing my holiday <laughs> themes. Liz. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I just wanted to sort of flesh it out in my, through my own process a little bit. But. Mm -hmm. Well, what I heard or what, what, uh, what comes up for me with what you just said, Heather, was, you know, so I used to be a director of uh, an emergent curriculum nature preschool. And uh, it was always emergent curriculum in the handbook. But most of the teachers when I arrived didn't really understand what that meant and how to do it. And so it often looked like themes. It's, and so yeah. what I hear you talking about is that line between emergent curriculum, where it's just constantly by the day, the week, or the hour emerging based on what children are interested in and what our greater community's passions are that get the children interested. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people will um, start that journey. And I'm, I don't know, I, I'm really so glad that Liz framed this as the, through the Lillian Katz thing mm -hmm. because it's making me think about this in a different way. Um, uh, earlier on, when we're in an earlier stage, we tend to interpret that as themes. So this child's interested in, in Christmas. I'm trying to make this be about holidays. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm trying to put, put a square peg in a round hole. Um, and so I'm going to do Christmas art and Christmas music and put Christmas things in the dress up area. And then it becomes a theme and it stops being an inquiry based project. Now Richard is Richard who's frozen this time, right? Yeah, he's really frozen <laughs> this time though. Um, oh, oh, there he is. Could you hear me though? No, you were just Could frozen. You hear me oh, nope. I said the most brilliant thing of my whole career. I don't doubt it. It's lost forever now. It, I mainly was just repeating something Liz said. So. Oh, okay. Well, then it must have. <laughs> That's been how brilliant. I. Was the most brilliant thing. It was the most brilliant thing. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> um. Let's see, I'm looking back at the quote just to see if there's any piece, other pieces that I wanted to specifically pull out, but I think we've covered a lot. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, the last bit of it is uh, um, we overemphasize the differences between people rather than demonstrating the ways in which we are both similar and different from each other, um, which really is kind of a danger in anti, any kind of anti-bias work that we're, that we're trying to do. Um, that was another development for me, you know, I thought, well, I'll just, uh, show all these different people and we'll read books about these different people and, um, Crack the brown and white eggs, open the red and green apples. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're all the same inside, um, without being, you know, appreciating the concrete thinkers that we're working with and, and how explicitly we need to and consistently, I guess that maybe that's what I want. Consistently, we have to have um, that message just sort of interwoven in everything we do all the time, if that's one of our goals, um, and not just four or five weeks a year we we pull out a way to talk about how people are different than than the dominant culture. Okay, um, okay. I'm going to throw in a deep thought. Um, so don't let me freeze because this is important. Um, we are all members of the animal kingdom. And so we, you know, our species comes from a long line of, um, survival based on, um, in part fear. Right. And so we're wired to think that any differences mm -hmm. are something we should protect against. Um, and it, it's so undergirded in our society, we tend to not even notice it. Right but we tend to immediately react to anything that's different as bad or a threat. Um, and so, you know, part of our evolution is becoming awake to that and aware of that and then making some conscious choices beyond what our reptilian brain is telling us in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we often talk about, you know, let's try to, let's just focus on our similarities when we're in anti-bias discussions. And that, that doesn't really, if our bigger goal is to help children make sense of the world in which they found themselves, the ways in which we're similar is part of that, mm -hmm. but it's only part of the story. And many of us struggle with the ways that we're different because we have deep programming back there that says difference is bad. Right. And so for me, if I am continually in my time around children celebrating diversity, uh, meaning like biodiversity, like, oh my God, I had no idea a flower could be that color. I didn't know a worm could be that tiny. That's so <laughs> cool. I didn't know um, your skin could, that skin could look the color yours does. And if that's just part of my wonder about the world and our wonder about the world, 
skin color and hair texture and holidays and all those things, mm -hmm. they don't become tokenized. They're part of a greater culture in our year together of just one being, having a sense of wonder at everything that's in the world around us. Mm -hmm. And on that long list, you know, human differences are just one of many, many things on that list yeah. and the ways we celebrate our holidays. So to me, it's that mindset that begins to overcome those fears that we're tokenizing or avoiding our differences. Mm -hmm. I think we could have a whole other conversation now about what you just said and um, Piaget. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, it down or you'll forget. Oh, thank you. So you guys talk <laughs> while I write that down. Okay. Say something brilliant, Liz. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. Or just What's it song? like to be a shy person on a podcast? <laughs> See, it's, now I'm just talking to my friends Heather and Richard, so it's fine. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, okay. With, with two very unshy people. <laughs> uh, I stopped listening after Liz Nolasco referred to me as her friend. And I'm uh, anything after that, I've forgotten about because that was awesome. Right. You leveled you, I really up today. I really to have this conversation with somebody even younger because I, I, I truly want the opinion of someone who's born in like, 2002 mm -hmm. you know what I mean like someone yeah. who's grown up in a totally different world than any of us did yeah. and just yeah. has experienced very different I mean I'm sure our own school years had a totally different approach to anti-bias than we're learning as professionals right and I'm sure theirs would be wildly different from ours and probably very different from what we're learning now mm -hmm. well now they're gonna all email me Liz and ask when they can be on the show with us well, I'm going to solicit comments on your Facebook page. Oh, no, it's Facebook. Young people aren't on Facebook. They aren't on Facebook, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I would say that is really important, what, yeah. what, you, what you just said. We three dinosaurs are aging out, my friends. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Liz's baby already is married and has children of their own. Um, pretty much. Uh -huh, I don't uh -huh. know how, I don't know. I think they're, I think Liz is that old. Um, but... <laughs> Really, the generational differences, it feels to me, and maybe that's just because I'm older, but the generational differences are marked, they're uh, are, are distinctly different than with this next generation than mm -hmm. any of the ones I've experienced so far. And I feel like um, as we continue on with the field of early childhood education, we need to be bringing in more of those voices because I want to make sure that what I'm saying is still relevant to the next generation of early childhood professionals. Mm -hmm. Well, I so guess we should happen. try it then. We'll see what yeah. I can do. <laughs> I could probably rustle up some some young folk. Coming to you from the infant room of ABC Preschool. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, that's a valid point because, uh, you know, I, I worked with graduate students in my uh, job at Purdue um, before I was at, at the where I am now. And um they, they did call me out on some holiday and diversity stuff one year when I felt like I was really, because I knew what my own progress had been and I sort of had plateaued and I, I was like, okay, so this is great. This is the way I do it now. And, um, you know, they were a diverse group and they were mostly, you know, early twenties and, and they had a much different, um, perspective that I needed to hear. And, um, you know, it, annoyed me and I complained about it. And then, um, I had to stop and, and really, um, take it seriously. And then I got to learn something. Um, 
Same with my community college students, you know, yeah. especially my black and brown community college students. All the things that I've spent decades tiptoeing around and have fears around, they just go right straight yeah. in. And, and I start to realize, oh, I'm, I'm on the wrong page here. If I mm-hmm. need to help them learn, it's not about the things that I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's true then too, if, the, if you're working at a childcare center and you've yep. been there for 20 years, um, there's someone at your center who's been in there for one and, and uh, has a whole new perspective that we may not listen to because of um, the fact that we've been doing it so much longer, whatever. Right. Yeah. Listen to that three-year-old instead of just doing your butterfly unit every April. <laughs> yeah. Don't make us complain about themes again. That's where I feel like this is heading. We've had a robust conversation about that one already. Um, okay. Any last thoughts? Cause I feel like I'm running out of, of, of things. This has been, this is good. This is uh, what I was hoping we'd do. Let's just really unpack it and go wherever it took us. Yeah. Um, Richard, why are you covering your mouth? Because I, you know, I have 20 more things I probably could say, and I know that we're out of time. So <laughs> okay. <being quiet. laughs> All right. I'm characteristically quiet. Okay. I could just mute you and you could go and get it all out of your system. Um, I won't though, because I want to go eat lunch. <laughs> Thank you both for coming on and talking about this topic with me. Um, and I, I hope we get some, some comments and questions and feedback um, so that we know how this, this topic resonates or doesn't with other, with other folks. So um, with that being said, this has been an episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Thanks for listening. And I hope you come back again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.